never satisfies. Last month, it was human wisdom. In the services ahead, it'll be work, wealth, and good health. Uh, Everything that you might put your trust in, everything that you might put your hope, your love to satisfy you, to protect you, everything that you might look to, to give your life significance, it just doesn't work. It's never enough. It always takes more and more from you, and it gives you less and less. And tonight, it's pleasure. You can give your life to pleasure, to happiness, to fun. You can have all the fun in the world, and it still won't be enough. Here's a scene from Ernest Hemingway's book, A Farewell to Arms. It's when Frederick Henry, who's an ambulance driver in World War I, is on leave, and he goes with a buddy to town, and they make the most of it. Alcohol, drugs, women, all the pleasure and happiness they can get their hands on. But here's what he says about that experience. I had gone to the smoke of the cafes and nights when the room whirled and you needed to look at the wall to make it stop. Nights in bed, drunk, when you knew that that was all there was. And the strange excitement of waking and not knowing who it was with you and the world all unreal in the dark and so exciting that you must resume again unknowing and not caring in the night. Sure that this was all and all and all and not caring. Suddenly to care very much and asleep to wake with it sometimes morning and all that had been there gone and everything sharp and hard and clear and sometimes a dispute about the cost. Sometimes still pleasant and fond and warm in breakfast and lunch. Sometimes all niceness gone and glad to get out on the street but always another day starting and then another night. All and all and not caring. Another day, another night. These moments of excitement drowned out by anxiety and boredom. He gives himself to pleasure, and it's not enough. Now listen listen to these words, someone who agrees with Hemingway. This is from the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And if you want to follow along, you can find this on page 553 in, in the Blue Bibles in the pews. So Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. This is what it says. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then... I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's not enough. Pleasure is not enough. 
So what I, what I want to do this evening is to show you three things. How pleasure really is good, but second, how it then goes bad. And then third, how are you going to make it right again? How pleasure really can be good again? So first of all, how pleasure really is good. It's not enough, but that doesn't mean that pleasure is bad. It's actually good in itself. The writer of Ecclesiastes calls himself the preacher, and he also calls himself the king in Jerusalem, the wisest king in Jerusalem, which either means that this is King Solomon or someone who writing in a kind of parable in the voice of Solomon who's preaching to us. But either way, here's someone who looks around at everything in the world, everything under the sun in his language, and it's all meaningless. It's all vain. And what he does is to do a series of experiments to see if there's anything at all in the world that actually is meaningful, anything that does have lasting significance. And this experiment in this passage is pleasure. Look how he approaches this in a kind of scientific detachment. So verse 1 says, I will test you with pleasure. He's talking to himself there. Verse 9 says that he keeps his wisdom the whole time. In other words, he's like a scientist in a lab, tinkering with chemicals and machines, and says, let's see what happens when I do this. And look at all the stuff he tinkers with. Alcohol, material possessions of every kind, toys for grown-ups, in other words, music, and sex. He says yes to all that. Verse 10 says that whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. So this is a person with wealth and power, someone who can get anything he wants, so he gets everything he wants. He says yes to everything. And the interesting thing is that, with one exception, which we'll talk about in a moment, everything he gets, every pleasure he says yes to, is actually a good thing in itself. He starts with alcohol. He searches how to cheer his body with wine. And you don't need me to tell you that, guess what, alcohol can be extremely destructive. You know that. Some of you know that very personally. Addiction has been with you either personally or someone that you love. But the truth is that Bible, the Bible says that alcohol is actually a good, a good gift from God. Yes, it's destructive when it's abused. And for some people, the best thing is just to stay away from it all the time. But in itself, it's, it's a gift. Psalm 104 says that God makes the grass grow for the livestock. He makes the plants for people to harvest. And, this is a direct quote, he makes wine to gladden the heart of man. Yes, Jesus' first miracle he performed was to turn water into wine at a party. Yes, this is terribly destructive. The Bible has plenty to say about that. But in itself, in its original purpose, it's good. Same goes for what the writer calls these Great works in verses 4 through 6. Uh, houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and pools. It kind of sounds like Downton Abbey, which everyone loves here. Don't lie. But basically, it's all the fun stuff money can buy. But what scholars say is that, is that these pleasure gardens are probably supposed to remind us of something at the very beginning of the Bible, the Garden of Eden, the, the, a garden paradise, which God made and which he made for people to enjoy. And at the very end of the Bible, when it describes what the world will be like after God has made everything right again, guess what's going to be there? Houses and vineyards and gardens and parks and pools and silver and gold and treasures. 
The writer is enjoying what God intended and will intend for his people to enjoy. It's, it's good in itself. Same goes for music. Verse 8 says that he hires people to sing to him. He, he enjoys music. If I remember my history rightly, the philosopher Plato was antagonistic towards music because of how music, and I think you can, you can identify with this, but how music can captivate your heart when Plato said you should be led by your mind. So don't, guard your mind, don't listen to music. But guess what? There's a lot of music in the Bible. There's a reason we've had music here tonight, because music is good. It's a gift of God. I listen to music when I prepare my sermons. Imagine what life would be like without music. No one would want that. Some of you have really bad taste in music, but that's another issue. The writer pours himself into music, and music is a good thing. Same goes for sex. Scholars say that the word translated concubines in verse 8 is a very rare word, a, pretty, a word that's really hard to define precisely, so it's really uncertain who his sexual partners are. But whatever the case, the, the point is clear. He, he pours himself into sex. There's a stereotype that Christians are weird about sex, that we think sex is dirty. I, I remember a scene from the show King of the Hill when Hank Hill is worried about his son Bobby's experience of, of puberty, and he expresses his deep hope for his son that he will be as sexually repressed as he is. Well, that's not actually the Bible's position on sex. The first wedding I officiated, I was asked to preach from the book of the Song of Songs, which celebrates without shame, without blushing, two people getting married and having sex. Russell Moore, a number of years ago, had a provocative article titled, or the, the line, your sex is too boring. He was looking at the phenomenon in Japan of how people seem to have gotten bored with regular pornography, so they need sensationalized computer-animated pornography. It's weird, cartoonish, violent, antisocial stuff. People are getting really crazy and weird, and they're still bored. The Bible's perspective, though, on the other hand, isn't boring. H.L. Minkin, a, a newspaper editor in Baltimore about 100 years ago, said something about the Puritans, which a lot of people think is true for Christians in general. He described uh, the Puritans as people who have the haunting fear that someone, someone somewhere may be happy. That's really clever, but it's, it's not actually true. If anything, Christianity is more interested in pleasure than other religions. It's more interested in pleasure than secularism. In our culture, we wear ourselves out working 50, 60, 80 hours a week, and we scrounge together any rest and enjoyment we can. It's like what Loverboy sang in 1981, to undermine my previous comments about musical tastes. Everybody's working for the weekend. Well... God beat Loverboy to the punch. The point of the Sabbath day in the Bible was to not work and to relax and to enjoy the fruits of your labor, to enjoy the pleasures of the table of great company with you. In fact, God didn't just say that you could do this. He commanded people to do this. You had to stop working and rest and take pleasure in what you have. So pleasure itself is good. And the writer of Ecclesiastes dives into what God has made good. 
So here's how it goes bad. The writer takes something good and it goes bad. Here's how. By making it selfish, sheltering, and ultimate. This pleasure pursuit, this happiness experiment is profoundly selfish. Did you catch how, how many times the writer used the words, the word myself? I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and pools. I made myself gardens and parks and pools. I gathered for myself treasure, uh, silver and gold and treasure. Everything he says yes to, he does it exclusively for himself. And that brings up the, the one pleasure in his experiment that isn't a naturally good thing. Slaves. His happiness depends on other people's slavery. It's profoundly selfish. It's also sheltering. These great works, these pleasure gardens, this castle of happiness is like a fortress protecting him from anything that could go wrong. He is the definition of hedonism, which is you know, seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Real life, with all of his frustration, all his disappointment, all of its sorrow, is out there for him, not in here, in his fantasy kingdom. This pleasure pursuit has gone bad because it's become this shelter. One more reason why his pleasure has gone bad. It's ultimate. Or at least it tries to be ultimate. In other words, the point of his experiment is to make pleasure, which is a good thing, the best thing, the ultimate thing, the only thing. That's why he's doing this. He's not an out-of-control libertine who just can't help himself. He's looking for something that is ultimately meaningful and significant and satisfying. That's what he wants out of pleasure. He wants it to be ultimate. Just to to make sure that we're understanding him rightly, it's not that he doesn't enjoy himself. Verse 10 says that he fulfills every desire, his heart found pleasure in everything he did, and that pleasure is his reward, he says. So his problem is not that he goes out looking for pleasure, but he can't find it. His problem is that he goes out looking for pleasure, and he does find it. And it's still not enough. Verse 11 says that he looked at everything that he had done, all the enjoyment, all the pleasure, and it was all vanity and a striving after wind. And the last words here, there was nothing to be gained. Now, let's, let's get real here. This man, a powerful king, has a capacity to fulfill his desires in a way that you probably do not have. You probably have all kinds of desires that you can't really satisfy, but maybe some that you'd be embarrassed to admit. So what makes you different from him is that there are limits in your life on what you can satisfy. Even so, I suspect that you have a problem with pleasure. Pleasure is good. These are real gifts for you to enjoy. But your pleasure can go bad in the same ways. If your pleasure, if what you enjoy makes you selfish, if it becomes a thing that isolates you from other people, or if it becomes a shelter for you, a a refuge, an escape from pain and struggle, or if it becomes ultimate for you, if it becomes the only thing for you, then your pleasure has gone bad. In our culture, as as hard as we work, as little little time and energy we have for doing what we want to do, because we're always doing what we have to do, but even so in our culture, 
pleasure has gone wrong at the big level. So if the writer of Ecclesiastes has a a capacity for pleasure-seeking that you as an individual don't have, it's also true that you live in a society that has a capacity for pleasure-seeking that's greater than any other society in human history. In other words, you almost certainly have more access to more opportunities for leisure and enjoyment than your grandparents or great-grandparents could have ever dreamed of. Compared to them, compared to basically anyone else in human history before you, anyone else in the world today, you are King Solomon. And there's the danger in that. Neil Postman, a cultural critic, has a, had a really interesting, influential book in, back in 1985 called Amusing Ourselves to Death. All the TV, all the video games, all the unlimited access to fun, even in 1985, we're, we're amusing ourselves to death. And Postman looked at the two great dystopian novels of the 20th century, uh, Brave New World by Alice Huxley in 1984 by George Orwell. Um, I had to read both of those in high school. I don't know what people read in high school today, besides nothing when the teachers are striking. But 1984 is about a repressive society that, that, that controls what you're allowed to think, but Brave New World is a different kind of, of repressive society that controls you with drugs and sex. And Postman said that, contrary to what everyone thought would happen, the world that we live in is actually Brave New World, not 1984. But listen to how he compares these two visions. He says, Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. That's our world, Postman says. We're amusing ourselves to death. So think about yourself. Think Think about when your pleasure goes wrong. Think about how it makes you selfish. I can remember some of, of the silliest but also the most embittered conflicts my wife and I have had in our marriage have happened when I've been absorbed in the innocent pleasure of a good book. I'm sucked into this fascinating world, this, this wonderful story. I'm, I'm extremely happy. I'm enjoying myself. And dealing with the kids again, feeling more and more alone. It's something good. turns selfish. Does what you enjoy take you away from other people? If so, it's gone wrong. Something good has gone bad. Here's another way what you enjoy might have gone wrong. When it shelters you. Remember, this pleasure palace for the king is a fortress against anything that could hurt him or make him unhappy. It's, it's a shelter. Does your pleasure work like that for you? To put it another way, is what you enjoy a place you seek for safety and refuge from pain and difficulty? This bottle, which used to be a simple pleasure I enjoyed with friends, is now a medication that takes the edge off my stress. 
or this hour on social media, which started as a way to connect with people, or this Netflix show, which started as a really gripping story, is now an escape from how hard today was. And it's something that I need to soothe me. One pastor said, We are meant to look pain in the eye, to grasp the experience, to bring it in hand to our God, to cry out for help, to find refuge, and then to do what we can constructively, however seemingly small our powers. Running to your pleasures is not the way to face pain. Pleasure that are used that way are misused, and they inevitably darken. So are you running to your pleasures to face your pain? If so, pleasure's gone wrong. One more way it goes wrong. When it becomes ultimate for you, when you look to it to satisfy you, and it captures you. It owns you. Several years ago, a speaker was addressing a crowd of high school students, and he asked the students to, he told them, raise your hand if you feel worn out by Facebook. And basically everyone raised their hand. It's called Facebook fatigue. And then he said, now raise your hand if you've quit using Facebook. And no one raised their hands. Here's something that's wearing me out, but I can't put it aside. And now, of course, we've, we've wised up a bit to how social media and apps are, are trying to do this. They're purposefully addictive they, because that's how they make money. And maybe for you, they're not just making money off you. They're not just gathering data from you. Their product has become ultimate for you because it's captured you. You, you can't live without it. Maybe for you, it's not tech, it's, it's something else. But, but what pleasure, even the most innocent pleasure, has captivated and captured you? Whatever that is, you've taken a good thing and you've made it an ultimate thing. And it owns you. It masters you. And then it fails you. You want it to satisfy, but it doesn't. Not for long. This is how it was for Dudley Dursley, Harry Potter's spoiled cousin. This is, this is Dudley's experience on his 11th birthday. Dudley was counting his presents. His face fell. 36, that's two less than last year. Darling, you haven't counted any Marge's presents. See, it's here under this big one from, from Mommy and Daddy. All right, 37 then, said Dudley, going red in the face. And Harry, who could see a Dudley tantrum coming, quickly ate his breakfast in case Dudley got angry. And Petunia had sent a danger, too, because she said quickly, we'll buy you two more presents while we're out today. How's that? Two more presents. Is that all right? Dudley thought for a moment. It looked like hard work. Finally, he said slowly, so I'll have 30, 30, 30, 39. Oh, all right then. 36 presents isn't enough because it's less than the year before. It's, it's the law of diminishing returns. That whatever I enjoy... The moment I stop enjoying it and I start needing it, it's become ultimate, but it doesn't satisfy. It's gone bad. So pleasure actually is good, but it goes bad. One more thing. How can you make it right again? The preacher, the king, comes to the end of his pleasure search and he's disappointed. There's nothing to be gained under the sun, he says. And then he goes to the next thing. If it's, if it's not pleasure that's ultimately meaningful and satisfying, then maybe it's something else. And we'll look at our 
upcoming service is what he goes into next. But stick with pleasure. How do you make something good that goes bad right again? Well, if the problem with this pursuit of pleasure is that it's selfish, sheltering, and ultimate, then what you need is a pleasure that's, that's put in its right place, that's self-giving rather than selfish, that's not sheltering or a place of safety, and that's enjoyable, but not ultimate. That's what you need. How do you get that? What, what move do you make for that? Here's what the Bible says. You need to follow another pleasure-seeking king. You need to rely on a king who pursued joy the right way. What the book of Hebrews says in the New Testament is to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, Jesus went after joy. He went after lasting, satisfying pleasure. And he went through the cross to get there. That's not selfish pleasure because he gave himself, he gave his life for other people, for you. And it's not sheltering pleasure. It's the opposite of sheltering pleasure. It was the full embrace of pain and rejection and abandonment and shame so that he could bring other people, he could bring you into the joy and the fellowship and the honor of being united to God through him. And it wasn't a satisfaction seeking pleasure in some lesser thing. It was, the, it was joy in the true ultimate thing, in God himself. And when you trust Jesus, he invites you into that eternally satisfying joy. Jesus told his people that when he came back to them after he was raised from the dead, he said, your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In other words, the way to make pleasure gone wrong right again is to stop looking for it to be ultimate for you Because Jesus Christ is ultimate for you. And when he becomes that for you, when Jesus is what captures and captivates you, then you actually can start to enjoy all of those pleasures that have gone wrong. David Pallison calls these innocent pleasures. You really can enjoy these innocent pleasures. He says, an innocent pleasure doesn't own you or obsess you. It's a gift you you enjoy in its place and can then put it down. An innocent pleasure doesn't pretend to give you meaning and identity to save you, to protect you. It's not the source of solid joys and midlife's fragility, stress, uncertainty, and pain. It's a gift you enjoy, not the giver of every good gift. So it's always a lesser pleasure and does not steal first place in your affections. That's how you can make pleasure right again. So why pleasure is not enough? It's only ever enough when it's tethered to the joy of Jesus Christ. I love how C.S. Lewis put it. The, the problem, he said, isn't that our desires for enjoyment and pleasure are too strong. Uh, the problem is actually that they're, they're too weak. He says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased, he says. We're easily pleased. 
but not satisfied. It's not enough. Except in Jesus, the better pleasure-seeking king, who always is and will always be enough. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, you tell us that in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yet we're too easily pleased, but never really pleased enough. We want alcohol and sex and money and food and games and entertainment to protect us from pain, to give us ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction. And yet in you, we actually have what we're looking for. So help us to see these pleasures for what they are, as good gifts, to enjoy as gifts, but not as the giver of all good gifts. Thank you for Jesus, the true pleasure-seeking King, who for the joy set before him took on our pain, our sin, our rejection. And thank you that when our joy is in him, no one will ever take that joy away. It will be enough. We pray this in his name. Amen.